Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. Hey, one of the things that we've been talking about, um, kind of on our team, is the power of testimony. You know, Revelations chapter 3 says they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That word testimony is a powerful thing. It means telling the story of what God has done for you. And the word in Hebrew, the root of it, is actually a word called aduth. And what aduth means is to reduplicate. In other words, when you share your testimony, it's the story of what God has done in your life with the expectation that He will do it again. Like the very root word of testimony means do it again. And so we really want to start building a bigger database of testimonies of what God's done in people's lives, particularly with physical healing. And so uh, what we're going to begin doing is collecting stories. We've had so many people get physically healed in our church that it's become commonplace, which is a good thing, but it's also meant that we haven't been very diligent about recording some of those things for history, really. And so we want to start putting some of those stories together in, uh, in written format, in video format. And every week, we want to have somebody share a testimony of either God healing them or maybe even them praying for somebody who got healed, just to be, continue to build on that testimony. Very often, I've seen people healed, not from even great teaching on healing or a powerful worship service. People can get healed just from the testimony of other people being healed. It's a powerful weapon that we have against the work of the enemy. And so I've invited, invited Hannah, who's got, she told me her story of healing a couple of months ago, and I was so blown away with it. And I said, Hannah, would you please come share with us your story? And I've just been trying to find the right format to do it. So can we welcome Hannah as she comes and shares her testimony? Thank you. So when I was a child, and this is specifically a healing testimony, when I was a child, I always had lots and lots of energy. And by the time I reached high school, um, I would wake up at 3 a.m. every morning, and it became a joke because I slept so little, I just started baking. So I'd wake up at like 3, 4 a.m. every single morning, and I'd just bake. So my dad called me the, the muffin queen. <laughs> uh, and, it, and I loved having all the energy and having so much time to do so many things. Uh, but when I reached college... It was very odd because I was in a very aggressive film program and I should be fatigued and I should be very tired, but I'd only sleep three or four hours. Uh, so by the time I got to my, going into my third year of college, I noticed some other things uh, were not operating normally within my body. Uh, I would, didn't have periods, which is very odd for your mid-twenties as a female. Uh, I would only eat about 800 calories a day, but I would gain weight and couldn't lose weight. So I told my mom, I said, Mom, you know, there's just all these different elements. They just don't add up. It doesn't make any sense. I think something's wrong. She's like, yes, we, we should get you tested. So I went to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and went through literally a couple weeks of testing, trying to figure out what in the world was going on. They thought it was something with my ovaries, like just so many different issues. They couldn't tell what was going on with my blood work. Well, finally, they were able to diagnose something that's called Cushing's disease. So uh, we have two adrenal glands in our bodies. They sit under each, uh, you have the left and a right one under each kidney. And my right adrenal gland had a tumor. And I was producing 10 times the amount of cortisol, which is the main uh, function of the adrenal gland. It produces cortisol. 10 times the amount of cortisol is the average person. So what that looks like is you have tons of energy. Uh, you're always awake, but also uh, totally messed up my hormones. So they said, oh, you're going to have to go through this procedure. You're going to have to get operated on. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with the tumor. So I'm like, okay, you know, that's, that's a good thing. Like, go get your surgery. So I had my surgery. Thankfully, the tumor was not cancerous. But when I woke up from surgery, they said it, it, it uh, encapsulated so much of your adrenal gland, we had to take the whole adrenal gland out. But it's okay, you know, like you have another adrenal gland. And I'm like, okay, that's good. Uh, so I had to stay in Minnesota for um, a year to go through hormone therapy. So as I'm starting to go through hormone therapy a couple weeks after my surgery, they said, we have some bad news for you. You're left, you have a left adrenal gland, but it has never worked. Probably since you were a kid, your right adrenal gland has always been working, do, doing, producing all the cortisol. So you actually, you, don't, you can't produce anything naturally. 
So what that looked like is every single morning, uh, I had to be woken up by my sister because I couldn't wake myself up. She had to give me my pills so I could take my cortisol so I could even function or operate as a human being. Mm. And this would probably be what the rest of my life would like, look like. I couldn't do anything dramatic, nothing too physical, nothing to get excited uh, because that could totally upset my hormonal system. And I remember getting really angry at this point because there was this juxtaposition of my faith. There's what the Bible said was true, and I, and I was mature enough as a believer to know that God does heal and that the word is true. But the rest of the, the, what my life looked like moving forward didn't align with that. So it created this dissonance in my faith, and I became very, very depressed and angry. I was smart enough to not be angry at God, but I was just angry at life. And I remember I, I was still in Minnesota, um, didn't get to go back to college, had to do it remote, and was still in hormone therapy at Mayo Clinic. And my mom was driving in the car, and she turned on this preacher, and uh, the preacher read from Jeremiah 20, uh, 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, uh, plans to prosper you, uh, plans not to harm you, plans for hope and a future. And at that point, when I heard that word, something changed in my life, because I was very angry, very depressed, had no clue what my future would look like. But when I heard that word, something just registered to me, and I really just felt like God said, I have a hope and a future. Like, this is not your future. I have a future for you. Mm. And, that, and it, it was just a very subtle <laughs> thing in my mind that I was like, oh, I, I guess I'm healed. Like, it just clicked in my mind that I'm healed. Now, I still had hormone therapy, and I was not healed. So I was like, oh, I guess I'm healed. I should do something that the doctor said I couldn't do. The doctor said I would not be able to run or really do anything physically aggressive. So I was like, I should try. And at that point, I never, hadn't worked out before. I was like, I'm going to try CrossFit. So I went to a CrossFit box. I couldn't do push-up. Couldn't work out for more than three minutes at a time. I had to sit down, stop, let my body and all my hormones like catch up with where I was trying to go physically. And I had a, a shot that I had to take in case I blacked out or anything or, or had to go to the emergency room because my body was not, it was, I wasn't supposed to be able to do this. Uh, so th through the course of about five or six months, I kept going to CrossFit. Um, I blacked out several times, but I kept going. And I was like, no, you know, I'm healed. This is just, this is going to work out. I, ju I just knew in my heart that I was going to be healed. So the exciting thing is to this day, they don't really know how, but somehow I do produce energy and I do CrossFit regularly. And I wanted to bring this today. Don't tell me, don't tell me that God does not heal. Every single, these are some of my medals. Every single of these medals represent a marathon, half marathon, Spartan race. God does heal. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And everything that I do physically is to the glory of God because medically, I'm not supposed to have these. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Oh, so good. That's awesome. Here, will you let me give it to you? I mean, if you're not blocking out, blacking out, doing CrossFit, have you really done CrossFit? <laughs> I think that's part, that's part of it. Hannah, thank you so much for sharing that and just playing them on the floor all you want. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, for those of you that don't do that kind of stuff, I don't think you, you may not know the difference between CrossFit and marathons. Those are two very different camps. You, you can be good at one of them. You can't be good at both of them. And she's good at both of those. And so at least that's the conventional wisdom. And so I love people that just, they understand that when God heals you, he heals it all. Yeah. Right, Rassie? Yeah. He heals it all. All of it. How's your knee? How's your knee? Right. Good? Right. No problems. Right. No problem. Still healed. No problem. Still healed. God's good. So I want you to hear what Hannah's saying. If God can do it for me, he can do it for you. Amen? Well, I want to um, share with you today a little bit on the topic that we've been discussing for the last couple of weeks about relational accountability and, and what it means to kind of live as the family of God. Kind of the next part of that that I want you to understand is we are a family. God calls us a family. And I know there's a real buzzword in church of community, right? And it's a good word to describe church. 
But church is more than community because my community, my neighbors, I can go inside my own house and close my own door, but my family's still in that house. The, the intention for God and his body, the body of Christ, is to be family. Something where when there's a family, you got to learn to work stuff out, right? You, you have a commitment to one another that's lifelong, not just for the period that you're actually living in your neighborhood. And so living as the family of God is what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. But also being a part of God's family means that we're always making room at the table for more. You know, Thanksgiving's coming up, and of course, we'll have dinner at my parents' house that live a half a mile away from us. And uh, what I love about my mom is one of us was always bringing somebody a Thanksgiving dinner, usually the last minute, Thursday at three o'clock, hey, mom, can I bring 10 of my friends, you know? So we're scrambling, trying to find a table to set up in the other room that I'm probably going to have to sit at. And like, there's always room in that house for more. Um, And our house is the same way. I know that Sometimes in ministry, people start getting this idea that once you reach a level of ministry, that your, your home is someplace that you should keep people out of. There has to be a separation between you and the people you lead. And I just think that's garbage. We have so many people at our house all the time. Now, there's still time for my family. We, we need time for ourselves as well. But, but my door is open. Like we have potlucks and all kinds of stuff at my house all the time because it's the way God's actually called us to live. And so the idea is that not only are we learning how to live as the family of God amongst ourselves, but we got to make sure that we're always making room at the table for more. we got to make sure that as the family of God, we don't become so inwardly focused that we forget there is a world that is lost and dying because they don't have what we have. And if we're not careful then we can become a us and them mentality where we're focusing on how to make this really good not realizing that right across the street is someone who doesn't know Jesus and might suffer a Christless eternity if we don't do something about it. And sometimes we think the answer is just to make room for the table. You know, if I'm at my mom and dad's house and I've cleared a space and I've made room for someone to come, but nobody knows that there's actually a place setting for them, If there's no invitation, if they don't realize that, I I believe in words of knowledge, and I believe God can actually give words of knowledge to non-Christians as well. But for me to expect them to hear from God, knock on the door and say, the Lord told me that that seed is for me, that can happen, but things might go a little bit better if somebody tells them there's a seat saved for you at that table. So I want to share with you a little bit about how to share the gospel with people outside of the ones that you know, outside of just our church family. You know, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus was asked, what are the two greatest commandments? And he said, love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He's actually quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the first and greatest commandment. Which commandment is it? Which commandment is it? The loving God is first. You got it? Loving God comes first. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What this scripture tells me is that I can get a lot of things wrong when it comes to living the Christian life. I I can get a lot of things wrong in ministry, and boy, have I gotten a lot of things wrong in ministry. I can get a lot of things wrong in relationships. I can sometimes be hard when I should have been soft or soft when I should have been hard. I I can interrupt somebody and correct their biblical accuracy in a Friday night house church when I should have kept my mouth shut and just let that person explain what they were going to explain. This happened last Friday. I can make lots of mistakes in ministry, trust me. But if I get these two things right, then it's all going to work out. If I just get these two principles, or as Jesus called them, suggestions. Just seeing if you're listening. That's all right. These two commandments, 
If I get them right, then I'll get everything else right. If you love God and you love others, all the law and the prophets. What's the law and the prophets? In this point in time, the rest of the Bible. You'll get the rest of the Bible right if you get these two things right. But if you got the rest of the Bible right and don't get these two things right, then everything else is wrong. I love simple instructions. Love God and love his people. It's pretty good. They're his people. You know that, right? They're his sheep, the sheep of his pasture. So when you love his sheep the way he loves his sheep, you're going to get it right. That means I can make a mistake in ministry. I can make a mistake in relationships. But if I genuinely love that person, then it's going to work out. Now, what do I do to express that love for that person? Well, it's easy. You repent, right? You, you forgive. You ask for forgiveness. But if you get those two things right, you're going to be okay. The first one is to love God. I do want you to understand that loving God absolutely comes first. Everything else in our relationship with everybody else flows from our love for God. If you don't love God, you're not really going to be able to love others with his love. Because until you receive and experience the love of God, I'm only loving people according to what I know and according to what I feel. And if I don't know God, and by know God, I don't just mean read a book about him. I mean know him like I know my wife. When I know God and I've learned to love him, I experience his love, I receive his love, and then I can love others with his love flowing through me rather than my idea of what love is. See, the world has got all kinds of idea, ideas about what love is. <laughs> the world's got all kinds of ideas about what a woman is or a man is. But they certainly have ideas of what they think love is. And it just comes from all of these different, like, it could be anything. But the Bible says that God is love. God doesn't have love. He is love. So when I experience his love and I learn to love him first, then everything else flows out of my obedience to that first commandment. My biggest prayer for people is that they would experience not just his voice, but they would know his love. It's nothing like it. You read the whole book of John, and it's just about his love. What comes to your mind when you think about God? When you think about God, what, what really comes to your mind? Because whatever you think about, whatever comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. If we're not growing in our affection for Him and our love for Him every day, then we'll begin to think of God differently to who He really is. If I'm not learning to, to love God first, then it's really easy for me to question His goodness. Maybe He's not as good as I thought He was. That thing hasn't come through. The prayer I've been waiting to get answered, the job I've been waiting for, the relationship that I wanted to work out, it hasn't come through yet. So maybe you're not as good as I thought you were. The reality is you've just stopped growing in your affection for him. But when you walk with him and you're expressing your love for him, it's amazing how you begin to see him, how he really is. I heard someone say in a podcast the other day, Definitely not a Christian. But I thought the advice was interesting. They said, if you're ever having a bad day, just call five people and tell them how much you appreciate them. It'll make you feel better. And I was like, what if we did that to God? What if those moments when we feel like God hasn't answered our prayers, we just cast our affections on him rather than waiting for him to cast his affections on us? What if we began to pray instead of just, God, you got to do something. And those are good prayers to pray. 
And we just said, God, you know what I need, but I love you. I love you. I love you. I've learned to do that. Now you're going to think if I ever call you and encourage you, I must be having a bad day. (laughs) I'm not. Do it with God. God, you mean the world to me. You are my everything. Sometimes when you get overwhelmed by your circumstances, you got to get back on top of them. I've asked people sometimes, how are you doing? They say, well, pretty good under the circumstances. I want to ask them, what are you doing there? Why are you under your circumstances? You're supposed to be the head, not the tail. Get on top of them. Not because you're a strong person, but because instead of being under my circumstances, I just began to cast my affections on Him. Jesus, you are my everything. I had this song in my head. I was telling Bella this morning. You are my fire, my one desire. That's the only lyrics of that song I know, but I've made it my own worship song. I just, the rest of it may be terrible. I want it. Brent knew it. Anybody under my age only knows that because it's probably a meme somewhere else. But it's funny. how I just heard that and it just stuck with me. You are my fire. You are my one desire. That's someone singing about a girl, but I don't care. I'm casting it on Jesus. You are my fire. You are my one desire. It's amazing how your perspective begins to change. You begin to see God as good, not because you've convinced yourself of it, but because you've seen him for who he really is. Do you know the word God, the English word God? It actually comes from a Saxon word that means the good. That's where we get the English word God. So every time you say God, you are saying the good. You are declaring God's goodness just by using the name that we have for him. His very word in English, his name means good. So you can't say God isn't good. It's like saying God isn't God. Good isn't good. God is good. His name means good. It means a lot of other things too, but any theology that doesn't begin with God as good is going to be shaky. Let's start with his goodness, declaring his love for him. So not only is God good, but because of his goodness, everything he creates is also good. You ever created something that's not good? You ever tried to create a wonderful dip? And it's not quite so good? Our Friday night house church, we had a dip night, chips and dip, and everybody brought their own dip. Some of them were so bad, they didn't even come to dip night. They looked at it and went, Not only am I not bringing this, I'm not coming. I personally didn't bring a dip, so I made myself the judge of the other dips. You ever made something that's not good? I remember I took an art class in in college because I had to take one art class for my undergrad, and I found out that at the end of the course, you had to create some work of art. It didn't matter what it was, but you had to create a work of art. I dropped the class the next day. I so freaked out because I am so non-creative when it comes to creating things. And I went, art art appreciation sounds great. Because sometimes I create things that aren't so good. Luckily, I created three kids that are amazing. But that's probably more to do with Romy than it is to me. But what God creates is good. He is incapable of creating something that's not good. He creates by his very word. What he says creates and what he creates is good. You are the pinnacle of his creation. 
He created all the universe and He created all of the animals and all the planets. And when He created them, He looked at it and said, that's good. He said, but I got one more thing. And He creates Adam. And then the very pinnacle of creation is Eve. You are an expression of God's goodness. Your very creation is His good creation. Now we know sin came into the world and created all kinds of problems, but God didn't create sin. He created man and woman and He called them good. And then He said, go and multiply. So the goodness that He created can also create in His image the same goodness that you were created with. So not only do we get to love God, but we get to love His goodness, which is produced in you. The reason that Jesus says, love God and love others, is because you're not only loving God, you're loving what He creates, because what He creates is also good. It's the expression of His goodness in the earth. And He commanded man to go and take dominion over all the earth, because He wanted His goodness to go out through all the earth. If we love others, we are fulfilling that greatest commandment and we are loving God's foremost expression of his goodness on the earth when we love each other. So that's the second greatest commandment. Everybody say second. Do you start with the second? No. So if you have a community of people that endeavors just to love everybody, to accept everybody and love everybody, is that a good thing? Of course it is. You're shaking your heads. That wasn't a trick question. Yes, it's good to love and accept everybody. If in case you're wondering, yes, it is good to love everyone, okay? But it can't begin there because if you're attempting to love everyone, but yet you haven't obeyed the first commandment of loving God, then love is going to look very different to you and you'll end up hating some and loving others. Because it's got to be based in the agape love that God has for us. So we start with the first. But then we move on to the second to love other people. And how do we love other people? Well, John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So we experience his love, we share that love with others. But how do we share God's love? What does it look like for us to share God's love? It's not just setting a place at the Thanksgiving table and hoping that supernaturally God brings somebody. That's not sharing. It's preparing. And I think a lot of churches are great at preparing for the lost to come, but maybe not so great about going out into the alleyways and compelling them to come. We can get bad at that too if we're not careful. In our pursuit of the inner healing that I know a lot of people have needed, the deliverance that people need. Those are things that are important. But we can't stop at freedom. Freedom is provided for you so that you can extend His love to others. I am now not just free to be loved, but I am also free to love others. But we got to learn to share His love. Sharing is caring, Right? But can I make a confession? I'm not real great at sharing. If you've ever been to dinner with Romy and me, you'll know that me, like most men, have this gauge. We know exactly how much food we need at any one time to fully full us to completion. We may go over it. We will never go under it. But we know, I can look at a menu and know this is exactly how much food I need to be satisfied. Women, on the other hand, they know what that is, but they have wandering eyes when it comes to what gets delivered to the table. And somehow, when my food comes to the table, there's a lot more interest in what I have, sometimes what Romy has. 
And when you've been married for a certain period of time, you don't ask permission anymore. You just reach across and apparently apparently 10% of my fries belong to her. So therefore, 10% of my kids' fries now belong to me. I'll make it even somehow. I'm going to fill this quota out. I don't know how it's going to work. And so it's not that I don't want to share, but if I knew that I had to, I would have ordered an entire extra meal to share with my wife so that I have my quota to meet of what I need to get full. I'm not good at sharing. But yet I am the one that often is reaching across the table to get a little bit of what Romy has, because though I'm not good at sharing... <laughs> Oh, that's a shame. Our sound man isn't there. We can't turn it on. Though I'm not good at sharing, I am very good at sharing from her plate. Is that what you wanted to say? And it is me that also reaches across the table of the hypocrite that I am to get some of those fries for me. Except she orders sweet potato fries. And I don't know who came up with those, but they are terrible. You can keep, you can keep the sweet potato fries. Is that fair enough? Would you yeah, like to yeah, share yeah, my yeah, microphone with you? Go on, just share a little bit. You're so good. He's going to give that context of usually my plate lands on the table and his fork's in it before mine is. True story. True story. True story. Sharing is caring. So sharing is a learned behavior I've had to learn for a little while. I'm also the youngest in my family, so I think my plate was the one that got ransacked more than any other's. I guess that's probably why when people started telling me as a new Christian that I've got to share my faith. Maybe I just had this natural thing that I, I'm not real good at sharing. I'm joking about our meal somewhat. But I always thought, is it, can I just have this as my own personal belief system? Is it enough for me just to have my meal? I knew how much I needed. I knew how much I needed to put on my table and that's what I ordered and now I'm good. But it is mine, right? Like I get all everything that's on my table. And so this idea of sharing my faith always kind of freaked me out a little bit because I thought, well, can't I just keep it to myself? Or I'm not real good at like talking. I'm not real good at expressing why somebody else should be a Christian like I am. Because I always thought, Sharing involved being some great communicator or have deep, deep Bible knowledge. I guess for some period of time, I thought sharing was optional. But then I read Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be. Somebody say will be. You will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will be. It's not optional. You will be. So what's the difference between Clayton, who is freaked out about having to share his faith and tell the gospel, and the Clayton who it's no longer optional? What's the difference? It's the Holy Spirit. Oh, when you receive power, it's not an option. I can't help it. It just comes out. It just comes out because there's power in the gospel. Do you understand that the gospel is power? Like not you, not your words, not your convincing way, not the way you dress. The gospel itself is power. And you will be a witness. There's no option. You'll either be a witness by your action or by your inaction right? You can be a bad witness or you can be a good witness. But I thought I had to be a scholar. I thought I had to be articulate. And then I realized that sharing my faith is not about sharing my faith. It's about sharing something else entirely. I want to bring you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 8 because I believe this is the key that helped me understand what it meant to share the gospel. 
This is Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. And he says, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you had become so dear to us. This is the Apostle Paul. Do you understand? He's writing as the pinnacle of church leadership. Him and the rest of the 12, there is no higher level of authority and leadership you'll find on the earth than the Apostle Paul at this time. He's not saying, I preached the gospel to you. I gave you the message from a platform with a microphone, and then I went back to my high tower, to my green room, to my house that no one else is allowed in, to all of my inner circle of friends. He goes, no, no, no. We shared with you our lives. And when I got freaked about, freaked out about the idea of having to share the gospel because I didn't think I had enough Bible scholarship, Jesus said, Just share your life. Share your life. You know how to do that, right? Like you've been bringing people to the Thanksgiving table every year. You know how to open your life up and let people really see who you are. Let them see my power at work in you. Let them in. Don't keep them at arm's length. Clergy and laity. Man of God and follower of man of God. Share your life. Open your life. It's the hidden secret of evangelism. Can I tell you the gospel message is actually quite simple, right? It's not complicated. God loves you. Your sin separated you from the love of God. Jesus came and took your sin on his body and his blood purified you from all sin. And if you believe in him, you can be saved. That's a simple message. That doesn't require a Bible college degree. It does means you don't have to be a professional communicator. Romans 1.16, Paul writes again, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. It is the power. Do you understand? I'm not the power. My ability to speak is not the power. The gospel itself is the power. It has power. God proved this through Moses. I'll share this with you. We're going to wrap up here in a minute. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses, great hero of the faith. Moses couldn't speak. He stuttered. And it says, but Moses pleaded with the Lord. Oh, Lord, I'm not very good with words. Anybody been there? I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now. You ever have moments when you're like, God, why did you pick me? I would not have picked me. There are 20,000 other people that can do this better. Why did you pick me? That's Moses. Like you picked a guy who stutters to go talk to Pharaoh. Really? Right? Even though you have spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. The Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak? Hear or do not hear? See or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Peter and John, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, that, oh, they get up in the book of Acts and give like the most incredible gospel presentation to the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers of the day. And it says about those people, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This has got to be the most encouraging scripture in the New Testament for me. They were unschooled and ordinary. How would you like to have that on your tombstone? Unschooled, ordinary. How would you like that to be the report of your life? Unschooled, ordinary. But they had been with Jesus. They got the first commandment right. And they loved the ones who were trying to kill them enough to share the gospel of power with those people. They loved God, and then they loved others. And though they were unschooled and ordinary, they knew that the gospel itself had power. And even Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, who was articulate, Paul who was schooled, Paul who was not ordinary, even he said, my message and my preaching were not 
with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Listen, if it's good enough for three apostles and Moses, it's good enough for you and me. The innate power of the gospel is good enough for me. The power of the gospel is the gospel. So the key is not sharing your faith, but it's sharing your life. So what am I actually sharing? That scripture that I read you before from Thessalonians, that word, your life, in the Greek, it's a word called suke, and it means breath. In Hebrew, the word is ruach. The word suke is where we get psyche from, our identity, our makeup. It means that when we share our lives with people, we're sharing our breath with them. Close enough that they can feel your breath and you can feel theirs. How many of you just thought, I better put some gum in before I share my faith with somebody else? Can you see the level of intimacy this is requiring? I'm not just sharing my life as in I had you over for lunch. Sharing the very breath of God that's in me, I'm breathing it into you. There's a closeness. Paul is saying, we shared with you the very breath of God that has formed our identity. My identity in Christ as a son is what I'm sharing with you. That's the key to evangelism. Not just telling people the gospel. Now, at some point, you do need to tell them. But it's being so closely connected with the dying world. Not just connected with the family of God, but so closely connected with people that are not a part of the family of God that we share our very breath with them. It's breathing into them what's been breathed into us. Do you remember when Adam was created? God just took a bunch of clay, molded it together, and made the form of a man. It was formless and empty, just like the earth was before God spoke into creation. It says, the Spirit of, the, uh, of God hovered over the waters, and it was formless and empty until He spoke, until God breathed, until He ruached into the earth, and something formed, because when God speaks, things happen. Things get created by His very Word. His ruach went out across the earth and created the earth, and then when He formed Adam, He also was formless and void, and He breathed breathed into Adam. And it said that Adam became a living being. He put his spirit into Adam. And just like God breathed into Adam, we're to go to a lost and dying world and not preach a gospel from a platform and then disconnect ourselves from the world. We are to breathe into them what has been breathed into us. And then the gospel itself does the work. And it works miracles. So how do I do that? Let me show you two quick ways. You okay? You still with me? Are you getting hungry yet? Me too. It's very simple. I use the illustration of Thanksgiving dinner. If you set the table and nobody knows that there's a place setting for them, it's not going to do them any good. So the first thing you got to do to share your life is you got to go to them. If anybody wants to know about Jesus, here I am. No, you got to go. Jesus told his disciples, go and make disciples. He didn't say prepare and invite. He said go and make. You've actually got to go to them. You know, for years growing up, I saw that Christians were notorious for inviting, inviting their unsaved friends to church, but never going to those friends' kids' birthday parties, because it might be alcohol at that birthday party. Oh, I can't make that, but you can come to church. They never want to engage people where they're at. They'll only engage them once they walk through the doors of the church. Do you have any idea how hard it is? Do you have any idea the opposition that somebody who doesn't know Jesus faces just to get to our front door. 
Do you know that I've watched people walk up and down the sidewalk? I can, I can feel the conversation. They want to come in, but they've already got so many hang-ups about what's going to happen when they walk in that door. You can hear the conversations, and sometimes they come in, and they're like sitting on the couches. They haven't co- quite come in here yet. They got a cup of coffee. Maybe, like literally physically coming into the room, there is so much opposition to keep them from coming here. How much better if we go to them? This church is not an inviting and expecting church only. It is a sending church, whether it's Turkey, Africa, or Chesapeake. We're sending, we're going, and we're making, engaging people, meeting the needs they have where they are, close enough to smell them and close enough for them to smell me. Oh, man. But you know what? It's one of the gauges of our church. I love a church that always smells a little bit like weed and a church that smells a little bit like homeless people because everything smells really nice. Maybe we're not quite reaching who God's called us to reach. I want a church with people coming in with real problems. But I also want a church of people going out to places that have real problems, returning to places long devastated. We're not going to renew a city because we set a place at the table. We're going to renew a city because we've gone out into the city and breathed on the city and breathed God's breath into people. That's going to mean that you're very interruptible. Most of the miracles I've seen in my life were an interruption to what I'd already planned on doing. Same with Jesus. Most of his greatest miracles, he was on the way to doing something else. The woman with the issue of the blood grabbed the hem of his garment when he was on the way somebody else and received a miracle. Zacchaeus is up in a tree and is yelling at him as he's on his way somewhere else. The thief on the cross. Here Jesus is, just trying to die and take on the sins of the world. And this thief is over here going, Jesus! And he's like, I'm trying to take away the sins of the world. Like even the thief on the cross was an interruption to his mission. So be interruptible. Be okay. That you're going to be a little bit interruptible. And the last one, we're going to end with this. Sometimes you just got to fish a little deeper very practical way. I love fishing, but there's a couple of key elements to fishing, particularly when you're trolling in the bay or in the ocean. I remember being out one day and trolling back and forth during striper season, which is almost here in the name of Jesus, and just catching nothing. I remember it's always good to have a guy like that master fisherman that I'd call up and go, man, we're not catching any fish. I know you caught fish here in the same spot yesterday. What am I doing wrong? You see, there's a couple elements you need to know when you fish in the ocean. You need to fish in the right place. You need to have the right kind of bait. But sometimes the fish are a little bit deeper than where you're fishing. He said, how deep are you running? I said, we're running 10 feet planer, so it's about 10 feet down. He said, look at your fish finder. I'm sorry if I'm speaking another language right now. But the fish finder shows you where the fish are, and they were all at 25 feet. He goes, you are in the right space, the right place. You are using the right bait. You just weren't going deep enough. Start throwing some bucktails over, which can get down to 25 feet, and watch what happens. And sure enough, bam, we're slaying them, striper after striper. Because sometimes you're in the right place, you're using the right bait. You just haven't gone deep enough. Do you know that most of our conversations with people are the, how's the weather? What sports are happening on TV? What have you been doing lately? We got to learn to go a little deeper with people, to fish a little deeper. I got to learn to be able to have a conversation with my neighbor that breaks the awkward surface, like they have all these safe things that I can talk about, don't talk about Trump. Please don't talk about Trump. You know, don't talk about COVID. Please don't talk about COVID. Like you have all these safe things that you avoid, but to really be able to catch the fish, and God's called us fisher of men, you got to learn to go a little bit deeper. I've learned to do that with people over time. Asking more questions like, 
hey, man, I'm a dad and you're a dad. Being a dad's hard sometimes. How do you cope with all the stuff you're doing in your life and still be a great father to your kids? Do you understand that's just a little bit deeper, right? I know some people were taught to ask questions like, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, he says, why should I let you into my good heaven? What would you say? That might be a little too deep, but at least you went deeper. Like, ask questions and have conversations that go a little bit deeper. I used to ask this question. If God wrote you a blank check for your life, what would you write on it? It just makes people think a little deeper. Sometimes they realize they don't even know what they'd write on it. And some people, they're now about to express to you the deepest desire of their heart. And all you had to do was just say, if he wrote you a blank check, what would you put on it? Not if you won the lottery, what would you go buy? That's not deep enough. If God, the creator of the universe, wrote you a blank check, what would you write on it? And now all of a sudden, the conversation has changed, hasn't it? All I'm saying is, the gospel itself is the bait. It has the power, right? It's got the hook in it too. That's what I love about it. So you can be talking to the right person in the right place. Just learn to go a little bit deeper in your conversations. Maybe, how are you able to cope with the stresses of life? Look, we're, we're here and we're, like during the COVID season, like you're so isolated. What do you do to cope in this time? It's a baited question because you're waiting for them to ask you and you go, I'm so glad you asked. Jesus! You know, but you've asked the question to get people to think a little bit deeper. Does that help anybody? We'll finish with that. I got one more, but I'll have to do it another time. Let's pray. Jesus, I love you. I thank you, Lord, for the gospel of power that you've given us. And I thank you that it does the work. We don't have to work for you, God. We actually get to partner with you in reaching this lost and this dying world. I pray that you give us wisdom, Lord as we fish a little bit deeper to know how to go deeper with the people we already know. Maybe how to break the ice with people we don't know. So that this gospel of the kingdom would advance in Jesus' name. Come on, the Lord's telling you, go and make disciples. Set another place setting at the table, but go and make Go out into the alleyways. Go out into the streets and compel them to come. I thank you for the anointing that's on every single Christian to do this. It's not just the evangelist, but it's every single believer in Jesus has the anointing, the commissioning, and the power to share their lives, the lives that you've breathed into us and to everybody we meet. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.